Let me invite you to take your Bibles and go with me back to 1 John chapter 5 this morning. 1 John 5. For some of you, uh, the exercise that we'll start with this morning is relatively easy because you're in the stage of life. Uh, for others of you, it's like, well, it's not too far removed. I can remember that without much problem. Uh, for others still, they're like, you want me to remember what? Um, but I want you to think back with me to your childhood years, uh, whether you're there now, uh, whether it wasn't too far back, or whether it was a really long time ago. Uh, you know, when we go through childhood, um, it's just amazing uh, the way our minds are like a sponge. So much is being poured in and taken in, and we're learning uh, both by experience and by instruction. We try something and we go, yep, not doing that again. And then there's other things where maybe we have to do it multiple times and go, yeah, I really shouldn't do that. Uh, or maybe it's mom going, hey, don't, 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 don't. And eventually you start to think, you know, I used to think mom didn't know what she was talking about. Um, but now I'm learning she actually did know what she was talking about. There's all these lessons that we take. And in fact, I was thinking about it just a moment ago. I gave the students in school a really important lesson last year. I won't put them on the spot and ask them if they can remember back to chapel, uh, but the lesson was simply this, don't eat black jelly beans. Um, that's a life lesson. If you haven't learned that one yet, you need to just tuck that away that you just don't. You think, ah, oh, maybe it'll be good this time. Don't. Um, you just don't do that. Uh, you know, as I was thinking about life lessons that we learned, though, there are certain milestones, if you will, or certain events that we come up to through our childhood where uh, maybe a parent comes along and says, now look, as you get ready to do this, you need to remember this and this and this and don't forget about this. And um, being a parent now, I realize why that list just keeps getting longer because you're kind of going and you're like, oh yeah, and and because there's all these things. It, it might be the first time a child goes off to camp and you're like, hey, here are some things you really need to know as you go to camp. It might be when they get their driver's license and they start to drive unattended, and you're like, now remember. It might be when they go off to college, and you're like, my ability to influence, and now you have this like long list, and it's like, look, we're going to have to schedule a three-hour block and start talking through this, and uh, maybe we should just block off the whole week. I don't know. Um, for some of you, you've been at the time when you're getting ready to see a son or daughter married off, and you have a conversation, and another conversation, and another conversation, and you realize, my ability to influence with words is limited, so here are some things I want you to know so that you can live life well, so that you can live life wisely. That comes to mind as we near the end of 1 John, because John is an older apostle. He's been writing to these believers, and frequently through his letter, he's been referring to them as little children. In fact, the last verse that we'll get to this evening, he says, little children, and he issues one more instruction. It's like we're going out the door for whatever life event is, and John's calling us back saying, hey, remember, little children, this is important, last part of the letter, keep yourselves from idols. But again, even along the way, if you remember back with me, John's saying, now, I'm writing this to you so that, I'm writing this to you so that, I mean, he's... I guess he may be old enough or just personality direct enough or it's just what the Spirit of God had, which we know to be true, that he's like, look, I'm telling you, I am writing to you, 1 John 2, 1, that you sin not. It's pretty direct. 
I'm writing to you that your joy would be full, 1 John 1, 4. And as we get to the end of the letter, John, once again, inspired by the Spirit of God, just starts to say, now look, you know this, you know this, you know this, now do this. That's the structure of the verses that we're going to consider this morning and this evening. We could look at them as in verses 18 through 20, there are three life-orienting realities. And then in verse 21, there's one final responsibility. There's three life-orienting realities followed by one final responsibility. Again, if you just glance at the text with me, you see the beginning of verse 18. He says, we know, the beginning of verse 19, we know, the beginning of verse 20, we know. He's come through his letter emphasizing the fact that he wants them to have assurance of their relationship with God. He wants them to have confidence in talking to God. I mean, even in the verses that we read from verse 11 and following, it's very clear. He says, I want you to know that you have eternal life. He's not telling them, well, I want you to hope that you have eternal life. I want you to speculate that you might have eternal life. He's like, I am writing this to you because I want you to know that you have eternal life through Jesus Christ, that you believed on the Son. Not that you've worked really hard for it, but that you know that because you believed on Jesus, your relationship with God is settled so that you can have confidence in even talking to him in prayer. I mean, this is humbling, astounding stuff. We talked a little bit last week about that tension that we feel like, well, if we speak with certainty and surety, we feel like we don't have humility. And yet the text is telling us, really, we ought to have both. He's saying, I want you to know this is true, that you have certainty on it, but it is a humbling reality to realize God's done this graciously through his son, not through our efforts. And so we come to these three statements at the end. Now, folks, remember, we know this, we know this, and we know this. Now, go live this way. The idea behind each of these knows, they're perfect tense verbs to say, Somewhere back here in the past, we came to know this, and we continue to know this to be true. It's changing the way that we live. And again, in, our, in your mind's eye as we walk through the text, I, I hope you can visually imagine or think about what it is for this older statesman, this apostle, this one who is beloved of Jesus, walked with Jesus, heard Jesus, saw the miracles of Jesus, to be now telling these younger believers, look, we know this to be true. We came to know this in the past. We continue to know this present. This ought to shape how we live. The first life-orienting reality that we want to look at is in verse 18. It is this. It is the conduct of sonship. The conduct of sonship. We've spent a lot of time in 1 John saying that which is born of God has his nature. And the illustrations are almost endless, whether we look at the way someone appears or behaves, we can often go, oh, you're just like your dad. You look just like your mom. Because so often, children have these characteristics that are so similar to that of their parents in some way or another. And John has been saying, if you're a child of God, there are ways that you think, 
like him or act like him or speak like him. And when it doesn't line up, it points to a need to grow. It points to a need to repent. So, you know, the obvious one that we spent a lot of time on in 1 John is, if you are, have been loved by God through Jesus, you better love those who are born of Jesus too. Right? Beloved, 1 John 4, 7 and 8, uh, we ought to love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God. So we come to the conductive sonship. John spent so much time saying, here's your believer standing, you're a child of God, but here's also your uh, living. In other words, your belief changes your behavior. That he starts to say, now let me remind you one final time what you know about how you live as one of God's children. In looking at the conduct of sonship, we'll look first at the diligent practice of God's children. The diligent practice of God's children. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. Now, whether you've been with us through the whole study of 1 John or maybe here with us for the first time, there's a side of that phrase that ought to just kind of go, ooh. We know that whatsoever is born of God sinneth not. I won't make you raise your hand, but I'm tempted to ask you, like, how many of you didn't sin this last week? Not one unkind thought. Not one millisecond of anger. Right? We could keep adding to the list if we wanted to. Uh, many of us identify with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 where he's like, I want to do what's good, but I find myself doing what's bad. I don't want to do what's bad, but that's what I find myself doing. Who's going to deliver me? And he says, Jesus is my answer. Jesus is my hope. So we need to consider contextually what John is saying. He's just written with this purposeful assurance that we looked at last week, this relational confidence. We can pray and talk to God. But coming out of that, he wants us to understand just because you're assured of your relationship, just because you can go to God confidently, it doesn't give us a license to sin. Sin is to be prayed for. We saw that last week. Sin can end in death. All that doesn't meet God's standard is sin. He's been driving at this point like sin cannot be tolerated. Sin does need to be dealt with. And now as he nears the end of his letter, he says, God's children do not habitually sin. We've talked about this much as we've worked our way through 1 John. We hit it right out of the gate in 1 John chapter 1 as to tenses of verbs and all of that. This again is a present tense verb. We could very easily just say God's children are not in ongoing sin. Do God's children sin point in time? Yes, right? In fact, you could flip back there with me if you want. In 1 John chapter 1, he said it this way. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. So if it's like, oh yeah, I know God, I'm good with God, but I habitually conduct life and am walking in darkness, I'm lying. I'm not telling the truth. But then he says in uh, verse 7, uh, that's 2 John, 1 John 1 verse 7, but if we are walking in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of, his, of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. He's like, and God's doing this continual work of cleansing through Jesus. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth's not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Believers, God's children, are going to battle against sin. 
It will happen in a moment where you give in to temptation. You need to make it right. There's no excuse for it. Grace was available. But believers that are God's children should not be going, well, you know what? I can just keep on going and continuing sin because God's grace will just keep going. He's like, no, it doesn't work that way. It's that same idea that we uh, read of in Romans chapter 6 as well. Again, 1 John 2, 1, we referenced it a moment ago, but he said, my little children, these things I write unto you, that ye sin not, that you are not sinning in an ongoing way. But then he continues in the verse, if any man sin point in time, what do you have? An advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 1 John helps us so much in our battle with sin. Because generally, human propensities to go one of two, two directions. To become discouraged and overwhelmed at personal failure and go, I can't. And go, no, you need to seek forgiveness again. Grace is available. God's children don't have to keep living this way. Don't be discouraged. You have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Or on the other hand, to go, well, you know what? I guess it's not that big of a deal. I mean, after all, Jesus died and God's so gracious and we don't care. No, we need to keep fighting against temptation and against sin. Same idea came up very directly and strongly back in 1 John 3, verse 7. Little children, let no man deceive you. It's again, one of those calls like, don't get this confused because people get tripped up and deceived about this. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. It says, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. God came to rescue us to a different purpose. So I would simply ask us, as we start looking at the conduct of sonship, that there's this diligent practice of the believer when it comes to sin. Are you actively, daily, fighting sin and temptation in life. Recognizing there is a battle. I do have an adversary who walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Are you actively, daily, fighting sin and temptation? In other words, when it comes to honesty and integrity, you see, you know what, I take this seriously. I want to make sure that I tell the truth, whether it's at home, in my relationships with family, whether it's in my workplace, uh, whatever comes up, I, I just want to live with honesty and integrity and make sure I tell the truth. Or do we start to minimize, and go, well, it's, it's really not that big of a deal. It's not going to hurt anybody. No one's going to know. Believers, God's children, actively fight sin. What about selflessly choosing to love others and go, you know what, because God has loved me. I mean, this came up in our Sunday school class this morning as Matt was teaching to go, you know what, because God's loved, because God's forgiven, I'm going to love those around me. I'm just going to actively seek to do that because he's done that for me. Or do we regularly excuse my lack of love and just go, but did you see what they did to me? And we start down this path of self-justification instead of going, no, believers fight sin. What about striving for purity of thought and living? I mean, we, we live in a world that wants to indulge and tempt with the sensual, make it readily available, and go, you know what? Believers fight sin. The conduct of a believer is to pursue right living. We could go on and on and keep going through different texts in Scripture, but don't miss or minimize the point of this text. God's children fight ongoing sin. Is this something that you can say with John, we know 
that which begotten of God is not sinning, is not regularly, habitually in ongoing sin? Or are you in the position like, well, I kind of know that, but practically I give myself a pass. He's speaking on things in which eternity is at stake. He's saying, here's what the conduct of God's children look like. It, it's not our performance that merits our favor with God. You can just back up a few verses. Who has life? Who knows that they have eternal life? The one who's really religious and is a good person. No, that's not what it says. He that believeth on the Son hath life. It's our belief on Jesus Christ that gives us eternal life, that saves us. But once that's true, we do live differently because we're God's child. As we continue looking at the conduct of sonship, we've started saying, here's the diligent practice of God's children. Secondly, though, let's look at the vigilant protection of God's children. The vigilant protection of God's children. We come to the middle of verse 18. We're given both an action and an outcome. An action and an outcome. Notice with me first the action. He that is begotten of God keepeth himself. As we approach this phrase in the text, there's an interesting issue both with the text and its interpretation. And I don't want to be too technical this morning. Uh, it has to do with the final pronoun of the phrase. Is it reflexive of he's keeping himself or is it personal? Uh, he's keeping him. There's also a shift. We've been talking about plural pronouns and now we go to singular. And um, there's all kinds of issues at play here. We can boil it down to this way in understanding the text. Is it that Jesus, he, singular, because we've been talking plurals, is Jesus the one that keeps the believer? Or is it the child of God that keeps himself? Okay, Biblically, theologically, we actually know both are true. We'll take you to a few texts in just a moment. But think of it this way. We've used illustrations like this before. Um, you can go back to your childhood if you want, or you could view it from the role of a parent. Uh, there are those times where mom says, hey, come, come back, hold my hand. And the child has run ahead, maybe it's a street, maybe there's just a concern about the number of people, and it's like, no, no, come back here. This was like pre-leash days, okay? Making sure you're still awake. But it's like, hey, come back here, hold my hand. Like, I, I was thinking about it as I was preparing this week, for whatever reason, with my dad, maybe it's the size of his hands or whatever, like I would hold his pinky. Right? Maybe you did that, I don't know. Um, but it's like, hey, come back here, hold my hand. Because then there's proximity, there's closeness. Other times, the child comes back. It's like they don't even have to be called. Maybe the, a dog is present, they're scared about the dog, and they come running to mom and dad, they grab that hand, they grab that finger, and they're kind of cowering along the way because they're fearful. Sometimes it's just for fun. Like I'm past these days as a parent, but I kind of miss the days where it's like we can hold just a finger, maybe a hand, and we could just like, whoop, we'll jump right over that puddle, we'll jump right over the gum that's on the uh, parking lot there, and it's just, you know, it's not even hard. Think about it this way, the child looks at a parent, and they're enjoying all that fun being lifted off the ground, and they're like, hey dad, it's so great that I hold on to you so tightly. You know, I don't think that has a whole lot to do with the success in the matter, Right? It's not really so much about the child holding on to the parent as it is the parent holding on to the child. When we come to Scripture, we find texts that tell us you had better keep yourself. You'd better guard yourself. 
you'd better live this way. And then you find texts that also say, but here's what God is doing for you. Let me give you a few examples. One of the most well-known ones, perhaps, is Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul says, wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul's like, I'm not with you. I'm gone. But you better keep working out the effects of your salvation. You'd better do this diligently along the way. Like, you have a responsibility to fulfill. But then he says this, verse 13, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So you work on this, but God's the one who's working on you. It's that same idea earlier in Philippians in chapter 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. I like Paul's testimony. If you're in the church's Bible reading plan, we just read this not too long ago, a few days back, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed on me was not in vain. Catch, the, catch this in this last phrase, the dichotomy of what Paul says here. For it is God, uh, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Paul's like, I, I outworked everybody around me. I mean, I was diligently pursuing doing right. But then he says, but the grace, uh, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with, was with me. Let me read it one more time. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace that was bestowed on me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Same idea again in Romans 7 that we referenced a few moments ago, but we should understand in light of the text coming back to 1 John 5 verse 18, that because we are in union with Christ, yes, should we keep ourselves? That's true. But far more the idea is that we are being kept. In fact, the keeping here is in passive voice. We are being kept. Right? Um, that God is working to protect, to sanctify. We could take it this way in two ways of application and looking at this action. On the one hand, we ought to work hard in fighting against sin. We already saw that in our first point. Work hard in fighting against sin. But secondly, rejoice greatly in Jesus' work on you. Rejoice greatly in Jesus' work on you. Apart from grace, apart from salvation in Jesus Christ, there is no hope of lasting change in us. There's not. And so at the end of the day, the one who saved us is the one who keeps us, is the one who will one day glorify us, right? You remember that text in 1 John chapter 3? That, it's that wonderful text where he's like, okay, you, you're born of God. What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Like, whoa, this is amazing. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when we shall see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Like He finishes his keeping, sanctifying, glorifying work when we're in his presence. So in the meantime, we purify ourselves even as he is pure. Divine sovereignty keeps us, but personal responsibility motivates us. 
Having looked at the action, let's look at the outcome. I think this kind of makes it even clearer, clearer, perhaps, as to who's doing the keeping. The wicked one toucheth him not. Right? Because God is keeping us, because we are his children, here's the outcome. That wicked one toucheth him not. The devil here is described by his character to say, this is the one who is morally evil. He's worthless. And having fallen himself, he seeks to destroy others and bring them along to his own destruction. And yet we're told here that for the child of God, this one who wants to destroy, this one who wants to lead to wickedness, is untouched by the devil. This word touch means to take hold of, to cause harm, to cling to in close contact. It's like, no, the devil will never grab a hold of you and keep you. It cannot happen because God is protecting. The believer is secure. Again, presently, this reminds us we don't have to sin. We don't have to reap the consequences of sin. There is a reason for hope to go look at your sonship in Jesus Christ. Because you are God's child, you are protected. You ought to personally fight against sin. There's this diligent practice and vigilant protection that we've looked at. We come to verse 19. We'll move past the conduct of sonship to, secondly, the contrast of ownership. It just flows out of the same thought of verse 18 to say, here's who you belong to compared to who others belong to as well. So we look at the contrast of ownership. You notice at the beginning of verse 19, God is our Father. God is our Father. We, we know first that here's how God's sons be behave, but as we come to verse 19, here's the one to whom you belong. We know that we are of God. He's frequently spoken of us as begotten of God. When we believe on Jesus Christ, we're born of God in Christ. And so now he's, uh, John directs us to look at our Father, the one who has care of us and control over us. Again, you can think back through his writing already. We've seen his care of us in that he loved us. Here we focus on his control over us because he's keeping us along the way. Can I just remind you, if you're a Christian, you're a child of God, you've been born again, that these things are true in your life, that God is your owner. He is your father. He is your master. You are of him. This brings an incredible sense of comfort it's why we love those texts like Romans chapter 8. They're going to tell us we can go to him as our father. But it also brings a sense of challenge to go, I, I want to live for him. I want to submit to him. I, I want to obey him. I have been born of him. So I love him in return. I, I live for him and serve him with all that I have. So we look at the contrast of ownership. We start by saying God is our father. But notice with me, secondly, wickedness is the world's master. Wickedness is the world's master. Contrast is painted very strongly in verse 19. It's saying, we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. Once more, John speaks comprehensively here. 
say, yes, here's those that are of God, but apart from those who are of God, the rest, the whole world, rests in, lies in this wickedness. There's no third category. John has done this time and time again, which I think the simplicity of it is so helpful and instructive for us to not let our minds kind of carve out some third or fourth or fifth or personally unique category just to go, here's what's true. We're either of God or we're with the whole world who rests in this wickedness. It's important that we consider that word lieth for just a moment to recognize again that it's this passive activity. We're automatically submitted to it. It holds control of us. We could almost view it as something that happens involuntarily along the way. It's a passive voice verb again. We're dependent on it. Right? You catch what he's saying? Like the whole world is dependent on resting in that which is wicked. We could just describe it as the, the wickedness of the wicked one or the evil of the evil one along the way. Again, I was listening to someone teach recently, and they just made a passing reference to Ephesians 2, and the way they read it, it just heard it a little differently that time, and the same thought jumped out there to me just a few weeks back. You look at Ephesians 2, he says, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. It's like, you had a different master, you were on a different path in life, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom we also had our conversation in time past, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. He's starting this contrast to remind us that the child of God needs to be distinct, needs to be different. The, the one who is of God sinneth not. Now he comes and says, okay, now we are of God, but the rest of the world, they they lie in wickedness. So live differently, live distinctively. And thinking about that, my mind this week went back to Jesus praying in John's gospel. Again, we've touched many times about how John's themes are so repeated. But as Jesus prays for his disciples and his future disciples, including us, In John 17, verse 14, Jesus says this to God the Father. I've given them thy word, and the world hated them, because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. God, I gave them your word, and as a result, the world hates them, but that's because they're different. They belong to a different owner. But then Jesus says this in verse 15. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. It sounds a lot like verse 18 into verse 19. To go, God, don't take them out. Like, for some of us, that's what we might want. In fact, for some of us, that's the way we try to live sometimes. Like, if I can only have contact with Christians, which is not a good idea, then maybe I'll be safe. Like, sin still lives inside of you. Right? And Jesus said, I'm praying not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would leave them in the world. Then in verse 16, Jesus said, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. What sets us apart? What sanctifies us? What helps us? Sanctify them through thy truth is the next verse. Thy word is truth. God takes his word to to change us, to help us. 
Even again, highlighting this contrast, you could think back to John's instruction in 1 John 2, verse 15, love not the world, right? We, we love something different because we belong to someone different. This world passes away, the lust thereof. Again, if we need encouragement, because you can look at the prayer of Jesus or the instruction of commands of 1 John 2, but what about the encouragement that John gave us in 1 John 4? You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is of the world. John said, okay, let me remind you about the conduct of sonship. You fight against sin, but you are being kept while you work at keeping yourself Here's this contrast then of ownership. You have a different master. You live for someone else. So I ask you again, what do your actions reveal about your ownership, about your sonship? So we'll come back to tonight. It points to our relationship to go, man, we have this wonderful privilege of relationship with God through Jesus Christ. What do our actions reveal? Let's close in prayer. Father, we've hit familiar themes that have come up time and time again in our study of 1 John, but Lord, I pray that they would be themes that we can agree with John and say, we know this to be true. We know it not just intellectually, but experientially, because we have been born again by faith in Jesus Christ, and as a result, have become part of your family, yielded to your grace, seeing your word and your spirit conform us to the image of your dear Son. Lord, I pray that you would take the words of this text and use them to give believers assurance. Lord, perhaps to, to challenge someone who's not yet saved to, to turn to Jesus Christ alone to become part of your family. Lord, I pray that you'd bring us back to hear your word again this evening. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.